Okay, everybody. Good evening. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, I'm Coriolson, the Tolkien Professor, and I am excited to continue our discussion of Chapter 8 today. Uh, so, first of all, Happy Halloween, everyone. It is Halloween evening. Uh, and, of course, I know that uh, uh, probably some of the people who often join us are are off trick-or-treating or distributing candy. Or perhaps, Mike, I saw that you're distributing candy and watching class, uh, which is very dedicated. Um uh, so that's uh, that's great. I've been uh, that used to be my job. I was the candy hander outer for years uh, when we lived, you know, down at, when I lived in Delaware. We lived in one of those neighborhoods that people used to drive from far and wide to, to bring their kids, and so we had like this huge steady train of uh, kids coming through. Uh, now that I live in New Hampshire, I live in this uh, little house next to a pond in the middle of the woods and nobody comes to my house anymore. So I don't give out candy anymore. However, I should warn you guys in advance. Uh, I, oh, and Mike, I was going to say, kudos on the candy selection. You guys really went all out. You're giving out like Toblerone bars? That's hardcore, man. Like, I, I, no wonder your house is popular. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, um, I, I wanted to, to give one little um, kind of caution or warning. or uh, uh, So there's no power at my house. I'm approaching now 48 hours without power. We had a big uh, wind and rainstorm up here uh, uh, in the northeast on Sunday evening. And um, uh, we lost power. Like Almost half of my state lost power, actually, uh, uh, that first night. And we, yeah, we we uh, we still don't have power. So I'm running a portable generator outside. We do have internet, but no power. Uh, so uh, you may see the lights dim alarmingly, which is of course some other appliance in my house turning on and drawing power away from uh, from the generator. Uh, it, there's a non-zero chance that something might happen and I might all of a sudden go blank here. I don't know, but this is a, this is actually the first time I've ever tried to, uh, uh, to, to broadcast a class, uh, with no power at my house off the generator. So we'll see how this goes. So just wanted to warn you, uh, don't be too alarmed. Uh, we should be fine, but, um, but anyway, that's uh, the, uh, we're, we're being a little adventurous here this evening, uh, in, uh, in carrying on. So, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, so let's uh, <laughs> just to warn you. So let's carry on. Um, let's. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Well, it's not. Fortunately, Harnuth. It's a pretty good generator that I have. It's it's running a, a, a about I don't know maybe a third of the things in my house right now. A bunch of our rooms are dark and things, but. Uh, but it's it's not quite as I've I, I have broadcast under more extreme circumstances. I remember uh, my favorite memory of the, of that kind is the day that uh, on on moving day, the day I was moving into this house up here in New Hampshire, um, was a day that it was. Uh, I remember that that summer I was teaching the Beyond Middle Earth class uh, uh, in Signum's grad program, and but I was co-teaching that class with Tom Shippey. Okay, we made it. And Tom was scheduled to teach that day. So I'm like, well, I don't really have to teach. But so anyway, so I made sure to get my internet connected like days before I got there. So when we, sh- when we showed up the house, the house was empty except for the router <laughs> sitting there on the floor uh, where it was plugged in. So the internet was working. Um, so I had my laptop sitting up on a stool in the middle of an empty house. Um, I sat there on the stairs and did my little intro thing and handed it over to Tom Shippey. And so Tom Shippey's teaching. So the whole time we were moving in, I had my laptop sitting up on a on a stool 
school and there's Tom Shippey going through and doing class and the movers are coming in and bringing furniture and like, who's the bald British guy talking on the laptop over here uh, the whole time? So that was uh, uh, that was fun. Oh, yes. And Tom is remembering the one I did on vacation with the cars going by. Yes, that was in the that sort of gazebo next to the highway there down in down at the Delaware beaches at the beach house. Yep. Yep. That was, that was fun. Um, I've, uh, I've taught class in some interesting kind of places at various points. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's always been fun. So anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> Tarwaniel's hoping that the lights go out in the middle of the barrows. Uh, that would be, that would be kind of fun though. Of course the downside is if my lights go out, then that, uh, uh, we'll probably bring it in to the rest of the stream as well, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll see where we go. And yeah, Lincoln, we're, I, there's no way we're seeing the inside of a barrow uh, tonight, but we'll see what we can do. Okay. All right. Um, so <laughs> let's let's get to it. There are, there are a couple people uh, who had a couple more comments about Frodo's stream. And as you know, I'm never going to rush off and, uh, and uh, hurry away from the discussion of a dream. Uh, so let's... Um, Let's uh, let's let's focus on this here. Okay, uh, a path into darkness is the title of today's class because we're looking at their departure from Tom Bombadil's house and coming into the Barrow Downs. Um, I doubt. Uh, my goal is to see if we can get as far as their separation, right? Uh, when they get separated in the dark, that'd be ambitious. But we'll see if we can do it. Okay. Uh, so two questions. First, Marielle, wonderful post. Uh, she said, I've been thinking a lot about last week's class, and I finally managed to put into words the sense I always had reading Frodo's vision of the far green country. I think it's a promise. Frodo has a very long, very hard road ahead of him. His story is going to be compared to Baron One-Handed and Turin bars, and be directly tied into by his companion into perhaps the greatest of the elven tales, The Quest of the Silmarils. Like all those other tales, his journey is going to be filled with almost unimaginable suffering and an overabundance of evil. But dear bought those songs shall be accounted, and yet shall be well bought, for the price could be no other. That, of course, is Manway speaking of uh, the, the, the tales uh, that, you know, the songs that shall be sung about the deeds of the Noldor. And evils can be held good to have been, though remaining evil. The gray rain curtain could be his journey, the suffering he shall endure. Significantly, it doesn't just vanish as if it never were. First, it is transformed, becoming beautiful glass and silver, before finally the swift sunrise is revealed. I do think the land, the green country, is Valinor, because that is the place where he is healed, and everything I have read of Tolkien leads me to believe that he does not see healing as the burying or forgetting of suffering, but finding the beauty that comes after it. If Olmo or another of the Valar sees enough of his road to know he needs comfort and courage, showing that which seems miserable, dark, possibly even scary, as something sublime, leading to wonder and beauty unimagined, rhymes well with the themes of the Silmarillion and on fairy stories to my ear. Um, I think this is a really great... Uh, I think this is a really great post. Um, I'm not... You know, last time I was a little resistant to the idea of its being Valinor... I still am, but I kind of want to qualify that. I, I I think that this this reading seems good to me, and I certainly agree with Marielle's. Uh, I love that reading of the veil. You know, the idea that the gray veil, uh, through which remember the 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 sound, right? The song that he's hearing 
is compared first to just a pale light that can be seen through that gray veil, right? Um, so thinking of that gray veil as suffering, I was we, uh, we were kind of moving in, in that sort of direction uh, a couple times last uh, last uh, last week, and and I, I think that's great. Um, I love that idea, and I totally agree. Um, so just looking at that element of Mariel's reading, right? Um, that the gray veil is like the pain and suffering, the, 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 the difficulties of the journey ahead of them, and that that's going to be not wiped out, not, not removed, right, but transformed itself into a thing of beauty, which will then in turn, uh, uh, you know, roll aside and reveal the, uh, the sort of the place of future healing. I think that's great. You know, I think that that's, um, that's a wonderful reading. Uh, and that strikes me as really, uh, um, it just it works right i i think that works really well um my resistance to identifying the far green country with valinor is it's not that i think it unlikely or or inappropriate or anything like that i mean as we talked about the the way in which there seems to be something kind of timey-wimey going on with the far green country right with the swift sunrise um suggest like undying lands you know that that kind of transition that, that again that works for me the reason i don't like to think of that to, to simply identify it like far green country equals valinor in, with you know in that kind of identification is that seems to me a little bit limiting i think that the vision is sort of less concrete than that um i i that is i i think it is a promise right um i totally agree with with mariel's overall premise but i'm not sure it's sort of that specific a promise, right? Like, don't worry, someday you'll get to Valinor. And, and that's obviously a sort of a cheapening of the message, right? Even the, you know, the message that Mariel's describing here. Um, but uh, but yeah, JJ, it's, it seems to me more metaphoric. That is to say, on the one hand, like, yes, it sort of stands for Valinor. It, it points to Valinor, right? But it points to other things too, I think. Um, I'm also happy seeing it as a, a more more of a symbol, more of a, uh, which again can, can work in multiple ways like that. So it can be Valinor. It can be, um, even just sort of that pure symbol for hope that like, not just to be, Hey, here's the place you're going to get healed, but the healing itself, right. As sort of a, 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 a visual symbol of the healing itself. Um, the vision with the way that it's a song, right. Which then kind of is sort of transformed in the description, like through the metaphor, through the simile, and then the metaphor into a into a, a visual description, um, feels to me more like a whole a, 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 a sort of a metaphor kind of thing rather than an actual concrete like scene, right? You see what I mean? Um, but um, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. Erekeb, that's that's that is interesting. Uh, um, Erekeb is pointing out it's important to remember too that Valinor is uh, uh, itself a part of Arda Mard. The far green country seems more like a promise of Arda remade. Yeah, I wonder, uh, Erekeb, if that's not part of uh, if that doesn't factor into my sort of resistance with that kind of identification, right? That um, there is something. It's almost like it's. I'd, I'd even be more comfortable saying that the far green country is like the idea of Valinor, right? Almost in a platonic sense, which I think 
Arrowcab gets to towards what you're talking about, right? Um, uh, you know, the, that, that, that promise of Arda remade. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, yes, Tony, it is Estelle Hope. Um, and it seems to me that that one little glimpse that he gets of the far green country under a swift sunrise is not like he is being vouchsafed a like visual glimpse of that of like an actual location right um you know of like a you know that so like this scene that hillside you know that field or hillside that he was looking at is going to be a field or hillside that he will someday go and find i'm not saying that i think that would be bad or i think that that would be lame or something like that i think that'd be fine but it seems to me more than that right um uh, I get more, more abstract, more symbolic, right? Um, uh, I think that it will be that. Like, when he gets to Valinor, he will remember the far green country under a swift sunrise, right? But it won't be that, like, oh, yeah, I've seen this before, right? Not that simple, right? Um, again, it's more about... It's more about the idea. Again, I think it points to the healing itself. And Erekab, coming back to your point, the really it would be kind of cool, right? If what is being suggested here is not only the healing of Frodo himself, but that the healing of Frodo is itself, a, you know, a synecdoche for the healing of Arda itself, right? That Frodo's own experience, his own experience of perseverance in suffering, only to find in the end that that suffering is made a part of the sublimity and glory of 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 his experience, right? And to become transformed through the healing into something more glorious than he could possibly have conceived at the beginning. The way in which that would then make his own um, his own career, right? His own life into not just a metaphor, but an enactment of the, you know, one, one instance, one foreshadowing of this larger vision for all of Arda, right? That's pretty cool. And so I, I, I kind of want to leave the door open, uh, to that kind of thing, right? Uh, so, uh, yeah, Mariel, exactly. It might be better to say that Valinor is an echo of the vision. Right, right, exactly. That, that's all I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not at all resistant to the concept. Um, uh, I just, it's, it, it's not that I want it not to be Valinor. I want it to be more than Valinor, you know, in a sense. Um, in a sense that even Valinor itself is going to be only a, a reminder of, a pointer to this vision, rather than a fulfillment of it, completely, in this sense. Um and yeah, Matt is reminding us that, um, uh, uh, you know, Matt says, aren't hobbits supposed to go to the same place men go? You know, the land beyond that the elves are confused by, right, to leave the circles of the world and all that. Uh, could he be seeing a bit of that? B- possibly, right? And, and, you know, Matt, that's one of the things that I'm kind of wondering there, right? One of the things that I think, again, if we see the far green country as not sort of a geographically localized glimpse of a place, right, but rather as, a, as an idea... Uh, as a broader symbol, then I think that we can see it also as being connected to this... Uh, 
in that way, the hope, the estel, right? The fulfillment, the remaking of Arda, the healing of all of the hurts and the fulfillment of the vision of Iluvatar. No, we're getting pretty grandiose here, right? Um, but I do think that that works. And I mean, all this stuff is, is sort of following in uh, Marielle's footsteps here in her analysis. Um, That works, right? So, I mean, in this sense, it it goes even beyond the history of Arda, tying in all of those things uh, together. So, anyway, um, I think it's... um uh, it's, yes, Tony says it's kind of like Sam when he asks if all the if all the sad things are going to be made untrue, right? Uh, uh, yes, exactly, and of course, no, they're not. And well, Tony, we'll talk about that when we get there, right? Uh, so uh, uh, stay tuned. We'll be we'll we'll be there very soon. Not long uh, between now and the fields of Cormowan. I mean, you know, not not long, uh, you know, from like a from the point of view of, like, the continental plates. Uh, but anyway, we, we'll get there. When we get to the field of Cormallon, Tony, that discussion's going to be awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> you're right, JJ. The Ents wouldn't consider it very long. I'm sure Treebeard uh, would still think our pace through the book fairly hasty, probably. Yeah. Okay. All right. But, uh, Mario, fantastic post. Uh, that was really, that was really good. Um... All right, Kyle asked a great question. Kyle, I think I saw you here live uh, earlier on. That's really great. Okay, so Frodo's last dream or vision in the House of Bombadil takes place at the beginning of Chapter 8. Why does it take place here instead of at the end of Chapter 7? Well, my quick answer is out of mercy, because if it had been at the end of Chapter 7, then we wouldn't have gotten into Chapter 8 last week like I promised we would. Um That's not my serious answer. It seems to me that on its face value, the dream or vision would fit better at the end of chapter 7, in which his other dreams take place. So why do we open the next chapter with it, instead of place it at the end of 7, where it would seem to fit in in better? Um, Is there a sense in which, in the oncoming uh, leaving back into darkness, and the world away from Bombadil's home, makes this more hopeful, uh, as well as... uh, discusses the intention of the vision of itself and this is better represented by the beginning of a new chapter it's a great great question i absolutely love this okay so first i would point out not only does it seem like it would kind of fit in logically at the end of the last chapter um as sort of a culmination of the visions and things that they were seeing think of all those visions right that they were having in the house of tom bombadil and listening to tom bombadil really cool, right? And so this vision would fit very naturally at the end of that. I would add that putting dream visions like this at the end of chapters is kind of a thing that Tolkien does, right? You can find a number of descriptions of visions like that. I can think of two off the top of my head, right? The Crick Hollow dream comes in at the end, at the very end of the chapter. And uh, Bilbo's dream of Bag End when he's looking around for something that he has, that he can't find, right? Uh, in The Hobbit, um, that also ends a chapter, right? So uh, describing a dream that somebody has when they fall asleep as a chapter-ending move and beginning the following chapter on the next morning when they make up, that's, you know, when they wake up, that is to say, uh, that's a pretty standard uh, move, right? Um, so why not do it here? Why instead tack this onto, you know, choose for, I don't want me to say tack, that implies uh, carelessness on Tolkien's part, which I do not think was the case. Why place it at the beginning of this chapter? So I had not 
I'd not been thinking in, in terms of that at all, Kyle, and so I'm really glad you asked the question. Um, uh, so, okay. What function does it serve? Why put it at the beginning of this chapter? And this is a great sort of launching off point uh, as we move forward into chapter 8 here. Um, this chapter focuses on first saying farewell to Tom Bombadil and Goldberry, right? Or at least they're leaving the house of Tom Bombadil. But of course, this is still a Tom Bombadil chapter, right? We're not really leaving Tom Bombadil behind. It won't be for several more weeks, right? Uh, because chapter eight is a thoroughly Tom Bombadil chapter pretty much from beginning to end. They're not with him the entire time. Um, but he is still going to be a, the central figure uh, of this chapter. Uh, so... So, that's one interesting thing, right? On the surface of it, that is, if you just look at the chapter titles, for instance, you know what I mean? That's what I mean by the surface of it. Using it as a segue from In the House of Tom Bombadil to Fog on the Barrow Downs, right? Oh, so we're leaving Tom Bombadil's house behind and going to the Barrow Downs, so this is the vision that sends him off away, right? Sort of. Right? Except not, actually. <laughs> he's not going away. He's going away from the house, but he's not going away from Tom Bombadil. And this, you know, this is not... The, the, the transition between Chapter 7 and Chapter 8 is not like the transition... Think about the transition between Chapter 6 and Chapter 7. Right? Or even more. Uh, I would say much more, actually, between Chapter 5 and Chapter 6. Between A Conspiracy Unmasked and uh, The Old Forest Chapter. Right? So... There, you know, we, we've we've sort of the conspiracy unmasked is the culmination of the whole Shire sequence, right? Um, from that started in chapter one and then ends with the companions together getting ready to head out on their journey. And of course, at the very beginning of chapter six, Mary comes and wakes him up, interrupting his dream, uh, and they start off on their journey into the old forest. Um, between chapter eight and chapter nine, we're going to get the transition as they leave the whole, like, larger Tom Bombadilian world and go off into Brie, right? So the transition to the Prancing Pony into Brie, that's another pretty significant transition, which is going to open a new, uh, I was about to say phase, but I don't want to use that word because of the way Christopher Tolkien uses it in the history of the Lord of the Rings. Um, anyway, it's going to open a new, a new, a new segment, right? A new movement uh, in the story. Between seven and eight, this is not really a new movement, right? The Old Forest chapter, the in the House of Tom Bombadil, and the Barrow Downs chapter. Really, if you think about it sort of structurally, right, um, you've got the pre-Tom Bombadil section, the Tom Bombadils, and the post-Tom Bombadil section, geographically, right? First, the danger in the Old Forest with Old Man Willow at the center. Then the danger in the Barrow Downs with the Barrow White at the center of it, and Tom Bombadil rescuing them from both with the time at his house um, in the middle, right? So, uh, anyway, uh, the point is... Um, the, so, so the first observation, Kyle, that I would make is that I think that the choice to put it at the beginning of one chapter instead of the end of another chapter is, in a sense, less pivotal here than it might be in one of those other places, like if it were really before or after, like the Crick Hollow Dream, right? The Crick Hollow Dream is really important because that is really, it's the dream itself which forms the the transition, right, between 
we've come to the end of the Shire and we're going to leave the Shire first thing in the morning and we're going to go off, uh, really beginning, truly beginning the quest, uh, but also, uh, also, you know, leaving the Shire and going into the Old Forest. Um, so the choice to have that at the end of Chapter 5 is, I think, very significant, right? It places it as, and this is, you know, sort of where sort of Frodo's mind is as he's now thinking forwards toward, you know, as uh, he's moving out of this into this into the other thing. Um, yeah, Oakwig, it is like the three Lorien chapters, uh, the, the these three Tom Bombadil chapters that we get. Um, so, um, yeah, this this is this is going to we will see these kinds of these kinds of and I don't want to make too much of them. I mean, of course, we could make a whole bunch of sort of arbitrary divisions uh, within the text. But some of these things seem fairly intuitive. Right. And make uh, make a certain amount of sense and seem to have a, um, some kind of sort of narrative emphasis to uh, to really underscore the significance of them, um, of these transitions. The introduction to Brie that we'll get, you know, the, like the introduction to the history of Brie, uh, is sort of one of those moments where the narrator is going to kind of step back and sort of uh, like, uh, sort of like the the you know the stage directions or even a, a sometimes like the speech of a the speech of a chorus or prologue at the beginning of a new act of a play, right? You know, that's that's kind of what that sort of sounds like a little bit to me, but uh, well, that's getting ahead of ourselves by several weeks. Um. So yes, I do think uh, Emma Thorne and Tony and Kyle, I do think that this placement is significant. He could have done either one. He revised this section a bunch of times, um, but he chose to put it here. So why? So the implication, right, is that if you wanted it in this chapter, if you wanted to start this chapter this way, um, that this is part of this segment. It's not part of... The main thing that it seems to me the main effect of, of the of this choice is the way that it differs from, or rather, it, the, the way that it separates it from the visions and and stories that they were hearing before. You know, chapter seven was full of a lot of those things, right? Stories that he's telling about animals and about trees and about himself and the enchantment that they uh, undergo, and then the experience that they have the the much. Uh, sort of cheerfuller uh, experience that they have with the song of Gold and dance of Goldberry and all those things that happen, right? When things get really cheerful when Goldberry returns and they're all singing and having a good time um, before, you know, Frodo puts his foot in it, or shall I say his finger. Um, and then Tom smoothly transitions him out of that and uh, uh, it helps him to save face. We don't get the dream as the culmination of that night, of that experience. And here's what I can't help but think. If it were, if we did get this at the very end of Chapter 7, um, I would have a hard time not connecting it, both with the visions that Tom had been giving to them through his stories and the experience that Frodo had just had with the ring, right? Um, and I'm not saying it's wholly unrelated to either one of those things, but it's, if again, if it were at the end of that chapter, it would seem like this is the, this is the culmination. This is the kind of concluding point of that sequence. By putting it at the beginning of the next chapter, he makes it instead the starting point of the next segment, which is going to be uh, their next journey into and through darkness and danger. Um, and so therefore, seeing it as part of, again, not 
wholly disconnected to the other stuff, but as part of this new thing. And um, uh, let's see. Um, where's the... Um, exactly. As Erika was just saying, uh, it by placing it there, it, ma- it, it makes the sort of interpretive question to be... Um, to be not how does this relate to their conversation with Tom, but how does this relate to the journey to come? Exactly. Um, and uh, and I think, let's see, who was just... Yes, Tungle was just saying, the way the dream bleeds into reality is really suggestive. Yes, the fact that the... Um, the remember what we were looking at about how, you know, he looks out and he sees and, and there's the green hill with the, uh, with the sunlight coming down on it, right? Um, that we talked about the similarity uh, between the vision that he has at the end of the dream and what he actually sees when he opens his eyes out the window, right? Presumably past the beans on poles. Um, and that does seem to me to be an important thing. Um, it draws our attention to the fact that we begin this journey, right? He begins this journey with, A, this sort of vision of what's to come, but also that that vision is connected to the here and now. Um, the, the merriment, contentment, the light uh, you know, the, 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 the radiant sunlight coming down the hill, all those things that we see in the house of Tom Bombadil, those are going to be really important in this coming chapter, right? Um, I think there's a good reason, apart from geography, uh, which, of course, Tolkien could have changed if he'd wanted to. There's a reason why we get chapter six and chapter six and chapter eight and chapter eight, right? Well, I mean, if, if we're going to have the house of Tom Bombadil in the middle with the bookend adventures on either side, why we get the forest and old man Willow first and the Barrow Downs and the Barrow White second. Um, because in a sense, I think their experience in the house of Tom Bombadil, their experience in the forest leads them to the, for- to the house of Tom Bombadil, but their experience in the house of Tom Bombadil is going to, in a sense, equip them for the adventure, especially Frodo, of course, uh, for the adventure that they're going to have uh, in the Barrow Downs. And seeing this uh, promise, as uh, uh, as Marielle was suggesting, seeing this promise as the first movement of that journey off into darkness, um, I think is a really important point. We want to bear that in mind. Uh, what is this, uh, this, this, this promise, what it is, is a is a, a promise of light and beauty. We talked about similarities and differences between the 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 vision that um, that Frodo has there and Sam's vision of the star, um, which we'll talk which we'll talk about in several years. But we start with that vision, right? And sort of armed with that vision that night, with which which transitions into the waking and the perception of the merriment and light and happiness and beauty and health of Tom Bombadil's house um, in the here and now is a really great beginning for a journey that for, you know, for a day's journey that's going to end, uh, of course, in a barrow. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, you know, Matt says it makes it feel as if the songs and stories they heard were necessary for this new beginning in Frodo's outlook or understanding of the world. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, 
But right, see, exactly, Matt, by having that transition point come before it, instead of seeing the vision as merely another one of those visions, right, it becomes these things were necessary and now this, which 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 launches them out on the out out on the journey. Um, yeah, so. OK. Um, cool. Let's see. Uh, yeah, good. Um, okay, so actually, wait, so I'm about to move on to our first passage now after the dream. But first, a quick note. Um, over the course of, and I, this is, um, uh, this is, this is, this, I want to talk about a sort of procedural thing for a minute. Um, just a kind of a reminder. I really love it when you guys start interacting with each other. I, I mean, I, I, I can tell, of course, that it's, it's wonderful to see, you know, as a teacher, seeing the kind of community that is building among uh, those of you who attend the class regularly and stuff, and that's really cool. But just a reminder, when you guys are talking to each other a lot in the Discord chat, it makes it really, really hard for me to sift through and find uh, people's comments and responses to the passage that we're talking about right now. So especially if you're going to have, if, if you're interested in sort of side conversations that are not exactly relevant to what we're talking about right now, you can totally do that. The Twitch chat is the best place for that. So if you go to the Twitch chat, then you guys can talk uh, uh, more. And I'm still kind of monitoring that, but a little bit less closely than I'm monitoring the Discord chat. So just, uh, it will help me to spend less time, less of our class time going, uh, uh, hang on, where was that? <laughs> and that kind of thing. So, all right, just a quick, just a quick reminder. So let us move on. After breakfast, which they again ate alone, they made ready to say farewell, as nearly heavy of heart as was possible on such a morning, cool, bright, and clean under a washed autumn sky of thin blue. Notice, Goldberry's washing day, right? Uh, notice it's not just a forest that's been washed. The sky has been, the autumn sky has been washed. Notice the emphasis on the season, too, thinking back to that uh, uh, observation from Fourth Dauntless last time. Um, anyway, the air came fresh from the northwest. Their quiet ponies were almost frisky, sniffing and moving restlessly. Tom came out of the house and waved his hat and danced upon the doorstep, bidding the hobbits to get up and be off and go with good speed. They rode off along a path. That's it, by the way. Notice. That's one thing that I always found really striking. Like, no, we don't get any, we don't get any song, right? We don't get any, we don't get, like, that's it? That's the whole saying farewell to Tom Bombadil? Now, of course, we know they're going to see him again fairly soon, right? So they're going to get more of a chance to say farewell later on. One wonders if... Tom knows that, right? Does Tom suspect that he's he's not going to bother saying a long farewell or giving an elaborate benediction because he, he's like, until later this afternoon, guys, bye, <laughs> you know, because uh, he know uh, he knows that that's uh, that that's going to happen. Um, but um, anyway, he definitely uh, um, does not. We, well, at least we get very little uh, of there's so there's 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 seem always to be a surprisingly small emphasis on the farewell with Tom Bombadil here. They rode off along a path that wound away from behind the house and went slanting up towards the north end of the hillbrow under which it sheltered up down underhill. Right. So they're going up the big hill. That's the same hill, by the way, that the sunlight was shining down when Frodo was looking out the back window when he woke up from his vision. Right. Um. 
Amethon, I'm not sure if we need call it precognition on Tom's part. You probably just can make a pretty shrewd guess, right? That, uh, I mean, I don't know if Tom Bombadil's a gambling man, but uh, if uh, you had to guess what the odds were, you know, if, if, he were, if you were placing odds on whether or not the uh, hobbits were going to run afoul of Barrow White before the end of the day, I, I got to think the smart money's on yes there. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, okay, let's see. Where was I? Uh, the Hillbrow. Okay, they had just dismounted to lead their ponies up the last steep slope when, Fro- when suddenly Frodo stopped. Goldberry, he cried, my fair lady, clad all in silver green. We have never said farewell to her nor seen her since the evening. He was so distressed that he turned back, but at that moment... A clear call came rippling down. There on the hillbrow she stood beckoning to them. Her hair was flying loose, and as it caught the sun it shone and shimmered. A light like the glint of water on dewy grass flashed from under her feet as she danced. And there's Goldberry dancing on the hilltops, right? Uh, Which is kind of fun. Um, Notice I love the description of her voice, of her clear call that comes rippling down the hill. Uh, to them, like a like a like a fresh stream, or maybe like rainwater running off down the hill. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, um, this is uh, uh, it's almost like a, a kind of an well, I don't want to call it a reenactment, but it recalls her voice descending with the rain, like the song that they heard uh, from outside. So by the way, remember we were talking about her voice coming down from above and we were like, is she flying? Is she upstairs? Right. I think she's up on the, up the hill. Remember that there's a hill behind the house. And I think it's pretty clear that where she's standing now is very likely where she was, um, uh, where she was, uh, last, last night, right. Or yesterday when she was, uh, uh, when she was, when she was singing. Um, yeah. Uh, Tony, Frodo's response to Galadri- to Goldberry is adorable. Uh, I'm thinking Goadriel because Tony's comparing it to Gimli and Goadriel. Um, my fair lady clad all in silver green. Here's... I want to be careful in how I say the thing that I'm going to try to say next. But I'll try to say it anyway and rely upon uh, your, your goodwill and going along with where I'm trying to go here. Um, you know how when they get to Tom Bombadil's house, they find themselves singing, right? It just comes naturally. It's, it's like it's, it's, it's more natural and easier than talking, right? The way that they're sort of infected with Tom Bombadil's whole attitude, such that they start singing and presumably singing in his meter, right? As soon as he, Frodo, meets Goldberry, he starts singing songs to Goldberry, which are just like the kinds of songs that Tom sings to Goldberry. It's one of the first things we hear, right, is him singing about Goldberry. Um... Uh, in that first song when he's coming uh, down the path and they encounter him for the first time. Do I think that Frodo has kind of been enchanted? Wait. Sorry. (coughs) Sneeze. Okay. Do I think that Frodo has been enchanted by Goldberry in a similar way to how uh, Gimli is enchanted by Galadriel? 
I'm not sure. I, I think there's a difference here. And so, so here's where I... I think that the way that Frodo immediately sings about gold again he sings about goldberry in a tom bombadillian kind of way i think that his sort of ap- appreciation of her mirrors tom's now you see why i'm trying to be careful here because like tom and goldberry are married right so i'm not trying to suggest that frodo immediately comes to think of goldberry exactly as tom does right it's that uh, there's lots of uh, really inappropriate directions that that line of thought could go, and I'm not suggesting anything like that. Um, but to be in the house of Tom Bombadil is to experience a kind of merriment and contentment that Tom feels, right? That Tom experiences, and to express it in the same way. And for them, when they encounter Goldberry, the reaction that for the spontaneous reaction that Frodo has, he immediately starts singing to to her in Tom Bombadil meter, right? Um, it's, uh, um, I think that it's, uh, I'm not saying that he's not expressing his own feelings, and I totally agree, uh, with like the mad violinist is talking about the, you know, this sort of, uh, you know, this, this kind of, enchantment that uh, you can fall, even if it's uh, uh, quite a platonic enchantment, but the, the enchantment that you can fall under, especially when you meet, you know, a fair elf, uh, a fair elf queen or something like that. And of course, this is different and more than that. Um, but, um, but it, it does, this doesn't feel the same. I'm not convinced, <laughs> again, I'm not convinced that Frodo's attachment to Goldberry is quite that personal. I don't think... Because remember, it's different. It's like knocking at the door of a cottage and and uh, finding the cottage door open by a fair young elf queen clad in living flowers, but it's not like that. It's kind of like that, but it's different than that, and it's more than that. I don't think that the experience that... In some ways, uh, Mad Violinist, the the... It's exactly that I I acknowledge that model of suddenly encounter elf, queen, princess, damsel in forest and become smitten and fall under her spell. I totally agree that that's a pattern. That's a traditional pattern uh, in fairy tale tradition. That's a, a clearly established pattern in Tolkien's world. That's actually why I'm resistant to it, if you see what I'm... Because it's different. Goldberry's different. Frodo's relationship with Goldberry is different. Um, so, um, yeah, Erokeb, good, yes. Uh, Erokeb points out that Frodo wouldn't threaten to behead anyone who said Goldberry was not the fairest lady in Middle-earth. Yes, the Gimli's sort of chivalrous... Uh, Arthurian uh, attitude towards Galadriel, right? Where he 
um, he he adopts Galadriel as his lady in like an Arthurian sense, right? Um, I am going to do my noble deeds in her name, and I will uh, fight anyone who will not acknowledge that my fairy is the that my, my my fairy lady is the the fairest lady on life. Like that's that's a very Arthurian thing, um, and I love the sort of Arthurian exchanges the sort of quasi-Arthurian exchanges that Gimli and uh, and Amir have on this point. But you can't see... Fro- I mean, Frodo may call her my fair lady clad all in silver green, but it's not like that with him. It's not even... Not, not only is it not erotic, it's not even chivalrous in that way. Um, uh... And I don't think... See, but Tony, I'm not convinced that it's because he's a hobbit and not a dwarf. I don't think so. I just think that this is different. I think that he does have a glimpse, and who was it that was just saying it that way? Um, uh, yes, Man of Rohan was just saying um, they're drawn into uh, they're drawn so easily into singing the way that Tom does. It makes sense that they would see Goldberry the way Tom does. A glimpse of it, anyway. Yes, exactly. More, more like that. Um, uh, yeah, so, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I, I could be wrong, but notice, unlike Gimli, he, Frodo, he's never going to refer back to Goldberry after this, right? Galadriel's going to change Gimli's life in a way that Goldberry's not going to change Frodo's life. No more than Tom Bombadil changes his life, right? But it seems... Just as singing seems like the most natural thing in the world to do when you're in the house of Tom Bombadil, so I think uh, uh, loving Goldberry, you know, admiring Goldberry, uh, being in awe of her grace and uh, uh, and um, composing verses to her equally seems like the most natural thing in the world to do uh, in the house of Tom Bombadil. In fact, I would almost take it a step further. I would say, if you go to the house of Tom Bombadil and you don't love Goldberry, if you don't, in a sense... And it's a kind of peculiar sense. Again, not like the chivalric sense, not like the romantic sense, not like the chivalric sense. Um, But if you don't take Goldberry as... Think of Goldberry while you're there as your fair lady, clad all in silver green, I think you've missed the point. I think, you know... As a Goldberry is as much of an idea as a person. Think about this this way, too. Remember back over the over the course of chapter seven. Think of the trajectory of Tom's stories, right? From animals and trees, through through Old Man Willow, to the history of the region, the elves and men and the hobbits, right? All the way back through sort of prehistory and you know the beginning of Arda. Um, you know, back to the dark under the stars when it was fearless. That is to say, think about what... If you had to sort of shape it into a narrative, what... what, Or 
to say this really super crudely, right? Um, uh, the really crude way to say it would be, um, what's Tom's message, right? First, it is get inside the perspective of other living creatures, right? I'm going to tell you stories of animals and trees so that you can understand what life is like for the animals and trees, right? So that you can understand them. Then I'm going to tell you the story of the history of this region so that you can get a whole different perspective on the rise and fall of all these different civilizations. And thinking back to Gildor's message about, but it is not your shire, right? Um, so... Uh, that's, uh, that, you know, that, that's, that's certainly a, uh, uh, another way that he is kind of inviting them to understand themselves and contextualize themselves and their societies and these others, you know, sort of history, right? Human history, elvish history. Uh, and then back to sort of the life of Arda itself, not exactly of himself, but sort of through himself and his own experience and his own perspective. Um, with Tom, it's always about, and I'm thinking back, of course, to what Tolkien said in that letter that we were looking at. It's about understanding. It's about understanding things, about getting inside uh, the, the points of view of other things. And when... So I'm coming back to Goldberry here. Tom being married to Goldberry. On the one hand, these are these are two, you know, fun, wonderful people living in a cottage in the middle of the old forest. But there's, of course, also a way, and this seems to be always true, whenever you have the marriage of two, uh, you know immortal spiritual beings, uh, there is always a sort of quasi-allegorical element of it, right? There's a quasi, there, there's, sort of, there's, a, there's, there's an allegorical element of the marriage of Aule and Yavanna, right? Um, you know, the maker and the mother of, of, of the living creatures, right? There's a, uh, there's a, a sort of quasi-allegorical element in the, not quasi, it's just an allegorical element in the marriage of Manwe and Varda, Right? But, uh, so similarly, on the smaller level, there's, uh, um, there's an element of, uh, um, there's an element of allegory in the marriage of Tom Bombadil and Goldberry, right? Again, what is he about? He's about understanding. He's about getting inside the perspective of other things. So perfectly appropriate right? For him to marry this person who is like an embodiment of this place that he understands, right? His marrying Goldberry is like his, his relationship with the land, the region, the weather, the trees, the air, the water, right? Um, Tom is committed to this place, right? So he marries Goldberry, the daughter of the river. Um, and so again, to hang out with Tom Bombadil and listen to his stories is to come to an extent to share his understanding, to share his perspective, um, to come to, and that's what his stories seemed targeted to do. Therefore, again, 
what's their relationship with Goldberry going to be? In as much as you're hanging out with Tom Bombadil and in as much as you are listening to and profiting from the stories of Tom Bombadil, you're going to love Goldberry. But you're going to love Goldberry differently than Gimli's going to love Goadriel, right? Um, and it's not going to be like the Virgin Mary. It's not going to be that kind of thing. It's going to be like getting to know the countryside. It's going to be like the kind of... Uh, uh, remember... Um, closer to mo- to mortal hearts, right? It's going to be sort of like like the relationship that Farmer Maggot has with the Marish, you know? Um, like, there's earth uh, under his feet, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so... Yeah, Stephanie says the whole Tom experience always seems uh, to be more simple, down to earth and rooted in nature and respecting of it. Yes, and his, in one sense, his marriage with Goldberry is like a symbol of that, right? Or, or sort of, it's, 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 it's like a manifestation of that. Um, and so again, like it, that's you, you, if you can leave Tom Bombadil's house and just be like, "Bye, Goldberry. It was nice," right? Uh, and walk away, you have not benefited from your time in the house of Tom Bombadil. So I don't see Frodo's devotion, even though it's very striking, right? My fair lady, clad all in silver green. Um, uh, and his desire to turn back and because he can't bear to leave without saying goodbye. Um, I don't take this as evidence of a crush on his part, um, even a platonic or chivalric crush, but rather... Um, this sort of resonance with like he 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 can't um <laughs> like the relationship Sam has with the beer barrels and bag end not exactly like that Arocab uh but you know I'm not sure I wouldn't be willing to say closer to that than the, to the relationship between Gimli and Galadriel in its way um yeah yeah um and Tom yes exactly getting to know personally your favorite place as a person. It's more like that, right? Um, the Old Forest isn't Frodo's place, right? But but he uh, he can kind of... He can talk about Goldberry like Tom does because he's come, in a sense, you know, to get a glimpse of that, as Man of Rohan was saying earlier, to sort of see Goldberry, in a sense, through Tom's eyes. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Anyway, let's... Uh, <laughs> Let's keep going. And I, I am not following it, but uh, this <laughs> prolonged uh, Ghostbuster thread <laughs> in the Twitch chat, I, I'm impressed by it. I don't, I'm not, I'm not following its relevance, but I'm sure it's cool. Uh, anyway, okay, all right. Hey, so let's go on and do a second slide. What do you say? They hastened up the last slope and stood breathless beside her. They bowed, but with a wave of her arm she bade them look round, and they looked out from the hilltop over lands under the morning. It was now as clear and far-seen as it had been veiled and misty when they stood upon the knoll in the forest, which could now be seen, rising pale and green out of the dark trees in the west. In that direction the land rose in wooded ridges, green, yellow, russet under the sun, beyond which lay hidden the valley of the Brandywine. To the south, over the line of the withy window, there was a distant glint like pale glass, where the Brandywine River made a great loop in the lowlands and flowed away out of the knowledge of the hobbits. 
Northward, beyond the dwindling downs, the land ran away in flats and swellings of gray and green and pale earth colors until it faded into a featureless and shadowy distance. Eastward, the Barrow Downs rose, ridge behind ridge into the morning, and vanished out of eyesight into a guess. It was no more than a guess of blue, and a remote white glimmer bending with a hem, blending with the hem of the sky, but it spoke to them, out of memory and old tales, of the high and distant mountains. Okay. Um, yeah, Tungal says that Tolkien loves the word glint and glass. And glimmer and gloom, yes, I do think that Tolkien loves the GL uh, beginning. And, and I, as I've said before, it is rare to find one of those things not in proximity uh, to another one of those words. Um, he loves that sound so much, he frequently alliterates on it. Uh, and you can see that sneaking its way into his prose. Um, Yes, Mad Violinist, this is the description of a painter. Absolutely. I think this is one of those moments that you can see Tolkien was Tolkien w was really seeing this in his mind, right? And I don't recall him ever painting this, uh, but he might have done, right? Um, yeah. Uh, but remember, we're given, we are, we're, we're, we are prompted, right? Remember, we were already talking about this shape, right? Chapter 7... Uh, in the chapter seven in the middle with chapter six and chapter eight on either side, this sort of Tom Bombadil triad of chapters, right? Um, and we're almost, well, not exactly reminded of that, but that uh, shape is kind of obtruded on our notice here, right? Because we have this hilltop explicitly contrasted with their view from the hilltop that we got in chapter six, right? And think of the, the ways in which that contrast works. So the bald hill... Right, the bald hill that they want to remember. Um, this was encouraging to them. They were encouraged by the bald hill, mostly because they were just glad to get out from under the trees, right, and to be under the sun. So that was really nice, and that was really, um, uh, that was really uh, 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 refreshing to them. But they were being deceived as well. Right. Remember, uh, it was misty. Right. They could see the mist still hanging over the valley of the Withywindle. Um, they were they could see an encouraging sight. They thought they thought that they could see the way that they needed to go from there. Right. There was a path that led to it, to the hill and a path that led away. But those seemed to be tree paths, deceptive paths, which ultimately corralled them down to the Withywindle Valley into Old Man Willow, right? So those paths seem to me to be formed under the dominion and influence of Old Man Willow himself in order to ensnare his victims, prey, whatever we want to call them, and bring them to him. So they were encouraged and relieved by their time on the Bald Hill, but that was a cheat, ultimately. Uh, and as I said, I think a trick. Um, almost a sort of taunting Right. Yes, you can escape from the trees for the moment, and we'll let you look out over the trees and imagine that you see an end to the forest. But we're not going to let you. Then you're going to you're going to plunge back down. Remember the language, the way that that hill was described to an island in the middle of the ocean, and we we so we got that ocean language and how that when they went down uh, the hill, uh, descending into the uh, into the forest again, it was like plunging back underwater. Um, yeah, exactly, Mungwe. All they could see beyond the forest were the Barrow Downs from there. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, Mungwe, notice, you'd think they would see this hill. 
the hill that they're currently standing on now, right? The hill behind. Uh, in fact, they could, they wouldn't see Tom Bombadil's house, but they'd see Tom Bombadil's hill, right? Because Tom Bombadil, the hill behind Tom Bombadil's house, up, down, under hill, the, the, the hill under which Tom Bombadil's house sits, is this other really tall hill that looks out and corresponds with the bald hill, right? Um, and yes, so Amethorn, now they can see clearly. So they're being, again, shown a vision, but notice the difference, right? This is not a cheat. It is now as clear and far-seen as it had been veiled and misty when they stood upon the knoll in the forest. Um, we have a cor- we have a fairly clear correlation now between mist and uh, deception. Like mist is is an obscuring thing uh, that is. Um, often kind of mysterious, like the the queerness around the withy window, right? Of course, there's lots of reasons why you would naturally have a mist lingering over the the, the low lands, the wetlands, right? Um uh in the in the early morning. Uh of course I'm not arguing that. But of course it does also seem to have uh another significance and we're we're gonna be um we're gonna be coming to see that more clearly, right, in this chapter, we're going to get more fog, of course, as we move forward. Um, and yes, uh, Amethorn, Goldberry's washed it, right? So yeah, that does seem to me. Remember the, uh, the, the, the cleanness of the wizard? Yes, the cool, bright, and clean under a washed autumn sky of thin blue, right? Um, yes, the air has been washed clean, and that does seem to be a big reason why they can now see. So it's like one of the consequences of Goldberry's washing day, right, is for them to be able to see this vision. We talk about Frodo's vision. This is a much more physical vision, right? Much more literal vision from the top of the hill. And they can see all of it. They can see all the way across the forest uh, to where the Shire lies beyond. They can see down into the south where the Withy Window, or not the Withy, where, where the Withy Window enters the Brandywine, and then the Brandywine itself hooks around. They can see down to the southern frontier of Hobbit knowledge, right? Down into the lands where the, uh, where Hobbits cease to have any idea. They have no idea where the Brandywine comes out, right? They've never been down that way. Um, they can see to the north, off into the distance, right? Uh, to see the the hills descending and the uh uh and sort of you know there's the, the the rolling hills up to the north to the east they see the barrow downs right row upon row and upon row of barrow downs but even they can even get a glimpse of behind the barrow downs right the barrow downs are really imposing but beyond them looms the mountains right and they just get a hint of the mountains off in the distance um it doesn't then doesn't say they actually see the mountains, but the what they can see a remote white glimmer blending with the hem of the sky speaks to them out of memory and old tales of the high and distant mountains. So at the very least, they are reminded of the mountains. Okay. Um. So. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um. But that seems to me important because that so even the Barrow Downs themselves, the Barrow Downs are the most imposing thing that they can see, more imposing than the forest, right? Um, because more obstructing of their vision, right? But yet even beyond the Barrow Downs, they can see something, right? Uh, they can see the mountains speaking to them out of memory and old tales, right? Um, yeah. And 
Blue Wizard, I'm also interested that the land speaks to them, even though they like what memory? None of them have been to the mountains before. Bilbo has, right? But none of the four of them have ever been to the mountains before. What memory? Right? Memory of old tales, pretty much, right? Um, but it's interesting that... So I think, like, out of memory and out of old tales is kind of two different ways of saying the same thing. Um, but it's interesting that those two things are separated in, in that way. He, he, I think he could just as well have said, out of the memory of old tales. Um, but instead he separates the two. Out of memory and old tales. Um... Sorry, uh, technical dork question. Is that an example of Tolkien using Hendiadus, which is a really cool thing? Uh, maybe I'd accept that. Never mind. I don't want to explain. It's uh, I don't want to. I don't want to get sidetracked on explaining Hendiadus. It's a literary technique where you. Uh, instead of joining, like basically take like an adjective and a noun and you separate them into two nouns in a list, uh, thereby drawing attention separately to the two things. Um, uh, it's a Virgil thing, but, um, but yeah, so like he kind of, he means the memory of old tales, but he, by separating it, he draws attention to the two things separately. Anyway, um, James asks, is this like the rocks talking to Legolas? Or, of course, in that case, James, the rocks refusing to talk to Legolas. Or they do say some things to him, but the, uh, they don't say much, right? He doesn't get nearly as much from them as he would get from the forest. Um, I don't think so. Because it's speaking them out of memory and old tales. Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. See, Kyle, sorry, I'm not trying to. Try, I was getting all English professor there for a second. It's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, sorry. A uh, little professional curiosity there. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, I don't think, um, I don't think that they're, they're speaking to them literally. But you're right, James, we can't take that for granted, right? Uh, that kind of thing does have, we're, we're going to see, uh, characters actually be spoken to by uh, by rocks and things. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Bricktails, I couldn't help but remember the mountains uh, in the distance behind Niggle's tree also, uh, which is another reason uh, why I think it's really interesting and, and indeed significant that it's frame, that, the, that, that frames the Barrow Downs, right? Um, Anyway, um, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Ah, okay. Excellent. Tom's getting even, uh, uh, even more technical than I am here. Yes. Uh, putting, uh, Histeron Proteron, which uh, puts the thing that properly comes second before the thing that properly comes first, the old tales for the memory. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Um, 
Anyway, okay. This, in a sense, in two senses, is the gift of Goldberry. They come up to say farewell to Goldberry. And she, as they come up and stand breathless, because they've just walked up this really steep hill, um, and they bow to her, and she, but she diverts their attention away from her, right? Look, right? So she, she's brought them up to the top of the hill, and she shows them all around. Uh, and of course, it's also a gift from her in the second sense, in that it seems like she's cleaned the air for them, right? So that they can see uh, so far around. Um, but... Um, Yeah, this gift, this vision of the land all about and all these other things associated with it. The limits of Hobbit experience, uh, the sort of this new context, you know, seeing now the Bald Hill in its uh, context of the forest, right? And so that sort of the way that this corresponds to that um, and is uh, 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 is this a sort of a you know, a, a positive version of what had been only a deception before their look ahead to the Barrow Downs and the reminder that the Barrow Downs are not, in fact, the end of the earth. Um, all of those things are uh, parts, it seems, of this sort of gift that she's giving them. They took a deep draft of the air and felt that a skip and a few stout strides would bear them wherever they wished. It seemed faint-hearted to go jogging aside over the crumpled skirts of the downs towards the road, when they should be leaping, as lusty as Tom, over the stepping stones of the hills straight towards the mountains. Goldberry spoke to them and recalled their eyes and thoughts. "'Speed now, fair guests,' she said, "'and hold to your purpose, north with the wind in the left eye and a blessing on your footsteps. Make haste while the sun shines. And to Frodo,' she said, "'Farewell, elf friend. It was a merry meeting.' But Frodo found no words to answer. He bowed low and mounted his pony, and followed by his friends, jogged slowly down the gentle slope behind the hill. Tom Bombadil's house in the valley and the forest were lost to view. Um, okay, I'll keep going. The air grew warmer between the green walls of hillside and hillside, and the scent of turf rose strong and sweet as they breathed. Turning back, when they reached the bottom of the green hollow, they saw Goldberry now small and slender, like a sunlit flower against the sky. She was standing still, watching them, and her hands were stretched out towards them. As they looked, she gave a clear call, and lifting up her hand, she turned and vanished behind the hill. Okay. Um. All right. Um. Yeah, sorry for those of you for whom Twitch is glitching. I, I don't understand why. Again, things all seem fine on my end. The broadcast from my broadcast program has been uninterrupted. Um, but I suspect it may possibly be still uh, connected with the with the perhaps the flickering of my power or something. Um, anyway, sorry about that. Um, now, I want to explain a word. Um, quick commentary on the word lusty. When they should be leaping as lusty as Tom over the stepping stones of hills. Um, lusty. That's a good word. To be lusty is a good thing. 
Uh, it's an important thing to keep in mind. I've talked about this a bunch of times in the past, um, uh, but it's important. So lust, um, lust is a is an old word. Uh, the old meaning of the word lust, like in Middle English, the definition of lust is desire. It's a synonym for desire. A strong desire, generally, right? Even a passionate desire, most of the time, but not First of all, not explicitly sexual, or not exclusively sexual, that is. I mean, if that's sexual desire is a kind of passionate desire, and so can certainly be a lust. But not only is it not exclusively uh, sexual desire, it's not, it's not bad. There isn't, a, there isn't a universally negative connotation. Lust, uh, for us in modern usage, lust is always sexual, and it's always kind of nasty. Like, it's, it's, it's uh, always at least questionable, if not actively corrupt. Um, but lust in the older sense, and it's the sense in which Tolkien uses it very frequently, um, is, uh, um, it's, it's, uh, it just means desire. I mean, like many, uh, many of the, uh, the medieval theologians and mystics and things talk about that lust for God, just meaning desire for God, like the desire to see God and to come to know God was, you know, we call the lust for God. It's not inappropriate sexual desires towards God. Um, so again, even that sort of most pure of all desire, most pure and most holy of all desires was, was, was called lust. So again, clearly no neg- no, uh, automatic negative connotation to that term. Lusty and lustily, uh, uh, Tony, as you're right, you can use that as an adverb as well. Um, Lusty is a little bit so desirous, right? But it's it, it it kind of broadens out when you do something lustily, or when you or when a person who often does things lustily can be described, therefore, as a lusty person. Um. Uh, anyway, that's um. Uh, it's connected with desire, but now a little bit more metaphorically. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Tony, if you're leaping lustily, right, with great desire, with high spirits, with, um, um, uh, yeah, um, yeah, full of energy, yeah, mm mm-hmm, that's another, that, that, that's another thing, uh, another association of it. Um, it can mean, uh, let's see. It can mean, uh, um, let's see, I'm thinking, Arokeb is, is suggesting ecstatic in the modern sense. Uh, yeah, like, sort of. I'm not sure ecstasy is exactly right as part of it. It's a little less ethereal than ecstasy. It's uh, it's a little more more connected with the kind of merriment that we see in Tom Bombadil. Um, with vim and vigor, sure, Matt, yeah, that works. Um, doing something for the pure pleasure of doing the thing, Tony, yes. Um, um it does have to do with sort of with strength, with fortitude. Um, in Middle English, uh, an, an Arthurian knight in Sir Thomas Mallory, for instance, um, if somebody was were to compliment 
a knight. He might compliment his lusty head, um, uh, meaning he's, uh, you know, like full of get up and go, <laughs> basically. He's, uh, uh, yeah, alive and kicking. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, that works, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so the singing fox is saying that the German word lustig uh, means uh, funny or maybe joyous. Yeah, yes, but that's a little bit metaphorical. That's not exactly... Um, Tom is, of course, both funny and joyous, right? But I think that when he's being called lusty here, uh, notice they should be leaping over the stepping stones of the hills straight towards the mountain. Their leaping would be... They'd be leaping lustily, right? Um, it's Tom's lustiness, his his uh, his vigor, his uh, com- uh, overflowing with uh, uh, you know with energy and uh, uh, I'm not even sure. I'm not finding a really great synonym, um, but anyway, I hope that my vague and faltering attempts to uh, um, uh, to describe the uses of that word are helpful in some ways. Um, but uh, there is sort of a kind of joy associated with it, but I would not use um, joyful, like as joyful as... I wouldn't use joyful as a synonym in English for lusty. Um there's a kind of joy in it. It's connected with desire, remember. A desire is the root word of it. So, it is like the experience of, like, when you are pursuing your desire. So, like, when you're doing something that you really love doing and really, really want to do, right? The kind of frame of mind and frame of body, right, that you would be in in doing that. Right, that's lusty. That's lusty head uh, in the in the in the Mallory sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, Hardy. Both JJ and, and and Sharon were thinking of 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 doing of, of being hardy or doing something heartily. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's a really so uh, Sharon and JJ. That, that's a really interesting suggestion, right? Because it the root of of the word hearty is heart, right? Again, which, which suggests that kind of, uh, sort of fullness of desire, right? Um, eagerness. Yeah. Okay. I, that's, that's a, something I think sort of, uh, sort of works. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Lincoln is laughing at the lack of quickness of my quick aside. But this is important, right? I, we got to make sure that there are times, there are going to be a bunch of times when I'm going to want to pause and think about words, right? And come on, it's not like Tolkien would grudge us that, right? Uh, so surely, uh, of all possible digressions we could do, this kind of digression is one of the ones which uh, uh, which Tolkien would most willingly allow us. Um Look at Goldberry's benediction. Speed now and hold to your purpose. 
north with the wind in the left eye and a blessing on your footsteps. If uh, the wind is in their left eye as they are facing north, uh, they are going out under a west wind. That seems good for a beginning, right? Remember, they're supposed to pass by the barrows on the west side, right? Uh, And it seems not coincidental that the wind is blowing from the west today. Um, But, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good. Anyway, okay. So north with the wind in your le- in, in the left eye and a blessing on your footsteps. Make haste while the sun shines. Farewell, elf friend. It was a merry meeting. Um. Yes, JJ. Exactly. So if the wind is to be in their eye, they should never have a barrow between them and the wind. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't want to let the barrows block the west wind from you, right? That would seem bad all in itself. Um. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and then she calls and vanishes. Um, I love this, the, the description of their descent from the hill, right? Um, they jog down the slope. The house and the valley and the forest are all lost to view as they go down the slope. And then uh, they're descending into the green walls, between the green walls of hillside and hillside with a scent of turf rising strong and sweet as they breathed. Um, what a wholesome beginning for their journey out towards the Barrow Downs, right? Um, what an interesting opening between Goldberry's vision and their descent from the hills into this bright, uh, warm, fragrant, comforting uh, path that leads them to the Barrow Downs, right? Um and remember, re- try to remember this from the, think of the two sorts of visions that Tom Bombadil and Goldberry have given them. Goldberry, the physical vision, right, around them. Tom, the sort of spiritual vision of this land and its history and everything else, right? The barrows are, are a small and passing thing, right? They, they're, a, they're a, from Tom Bombadil's perspective, they're a recent addition to those hills, and those downs have been there for a long time. Those downs are part of this landscape, right? When they're going among the barrow downs, they'll be between the walls, the green walls of hillside and hillside, and with the, the scent of turf strong and sweet as they breathe, right? That's, it's just, that's what the barrow downs are, right? Nothing to be nothing to be too intimidated by. Barrow Whites are only temporary residents in these, you know, t- a small and temporary blight on an otherwise beautiful uh, 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 landscape, right? Um, and uh, and yet, so both Tom and Goldberry have helped them and us see that, and I love this, that little reminder, right, as we're heading out towards them. It's all, it's all, uh, it's all good. Um, yeah, Tony says that Goldberry represents the light and high beauty that no shadow can touch. Yes, Tony, except in Goldberry, that light and high beauty descends down among them, right? Remember, nearer to mortal experience, less high and lofty, uh, and nearer to mortal hearts. Um, in that way, there's a real... Here's another good old-fashioned word which has a much, much narrower and exclusively negative connotation in the modern world. Um, it's a condescension, 
right? Um, that light and high beauty has condescended to the mortal experience and come to sing and dance among them and enable you to say, you know, my fair goldberry, all in silver green, right? Um, to have that experience, which is which can only be falteringly compared to knocking at a at a at a cottage and having it answered by a fair young elf queen dressed in living flowers, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Well, <laughs> I didn't get too far tonight, but that was good. We had a good time. Uh, next is going to be, yeah, we're going to start getting dark. So I didn't really get to the spooky part. It's Halloween. Didn't get to any of the spooky bits, uh, but that's okay. Um, Singing Fox, really great uh, observation there. Uh, she gave a clear call. Uh, and he says, I always hate uh, not to know what someone said, uh, even though I can guess it is a goodbye. I agree. Um, uh, what did she say? What call did she give uh, as they looked, right? As she lifts up her hand and turns and vanishes behind the hill. Um, you know, we, uh, we don't know. You know, the final word of Goldberry. And, and uh, Tony, I agree, it is a sort of a sad moment, right? Because we never, we never come back to Goldberry. We never see Goldberry again. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um, it was a merry meeting. Okay. Um, all right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. We will... Uh, We'll proceed along this path, which starts so um, attractively here, right, and goes off uh, into fear and shadow. Um, we should get to the fear and shadow next week. I hope next week. Wait, what's today? Today's the thirty-first, and so next week is the seventh. So yes, I will be here. Um, uh, I'll be here next week. I'll be gone the week after that. Um, but uh, in fact. After that comes two weeks, because oh, so I'll be gone the week after next, the week of the 14th. The week after that is the 21st. That's Thanksgiving week. We'll probably have class anyway, I think, on the 21st, but we'll see. So, uh, yeah, we did. Blue is a get three whole slimes. Well, we did the two other questions, too, which were really interesting questions, and we spent some time on those. So we've done a total of five slides tonight, all, all told. So we got about... Uh, did we do more than a, a page? Yeah, we did. We got onto a second page of text today, so there you are. Um, I have to I have to sit back and fan myself afterwards. Uh, all right, thanks everybody. So thanks to everybody on Twitch. I'm gonna I'm gonna say goodbye to the or not not Twitch Twitter. I'm gonna say goodbye to the Twitter folks, uh, and then um, I will we'll continue on Twitch. Bye to the Twitter folks. Come join us. Twitch.tv slash signumu. All right. Stopping that broadcast. There we go. Okay, and now we are going to continue, assuming that Twitch stays with us here. Um, all right. Very good. So we're going to... It's field trip time. So we're not going to go to the Barrow Downs yet. Uh, okay, all right. So here I've got Valori with me. Um, Evening, everybody. 
Good evening, Valori. So yeah, so we're not going to go to uh, the Barrowdowns yet because we haven't actually gotten there in the books yet. So we, I, I want to get to some of the descriptions of the Barrowdowns and then we'll see them after that. So, um, so yeah, it's good to see everybody stretching out after uh, sitting around for a while here. Um, so we're gonna go, we're gonna go up to Othricar again. Um, I the clearly the fastest way to get there is to travel to Esteldine and then ride up from Esteldine. So I think that's what we're gonna have to do. And we can yep. get we can get horses there from Westbury, right? Uh, yeah, you can get horses there. Or I am a hunter; I can actually port some. Ah, right, right. Okay. So if you ha- if you can take a horse up to Esteldine, and then we'll meet outside Esteldine. So back at the crossroads is where we'll meet. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, because we're not exploring Esteldine yet, I want to I want to get there after this. But okay, yeah. so let us go. We're gonna head up. I'm gonna be at the stables for people who need it. Okay, great. Yeah, more. so we'll meet up at the stables. If you can't, uh, if you don't have the Esteldine uh, uh, stable master open, and I don't know the minimum level for porting. I'll have to see. Ah, uh, okay. I think it's relatively low, though. That used to be your crafting hub. That used to be the minute you wanted to do anything above expert tier, you had to go to Ex- Esteldine back in the day. I remember tiptoeing along that road with everything going purple and angry at. Oh. So that was where, like, to, to get to do master crafting? I know that there's a bunch of the... Uh, yeah, yeah. There are three of the, of the different guild... Three of the guilds. Uh, ...are there, yeah. Yeah. I think Linus was a was a woodworker, so uh-huh, he had to go right. up to Esteldine, and it's like, why'd you give me this quest at like you know level fifteen? Right, <laughs> I'm obviously ill prepared for this. <laughs> right. All right. Glory's over here in his dark raven okay. costume. Okay, it's not Trestle Bridge. All right, I'm gonna head up to Esteldine. Does anyone need a port? Okay. I'm actually going to dismount right here. Whoop. Looks like everyone's taking a horse. Great. Stragglers. Okay, so we're yeah, I'm gonna head out back to the crossroads. Okay. So any fun costumes at your house? I didn't I haven't seen any costumes other than my own children. Uh but they do. Well, my my older son is now officially too old and cool for uh dressing up. Yeah. <laughs> 14-year-old boy, what can I say? Yeah, no, my 11-year-old took some talking. He's just sitting there going, I don't know, no one's going to give me... You're four feet tall. They're going to... Yeah, oh, totally. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, no, my... Uh, uh, so, Matthias, my 9-year-old, was a panda this year. Aww. He he loves pandas. This is like... I'm assuming because he's 9, it's it's an ironic panda. Yeah, well, I mean, he's he's uh, what? Well, no, he he just like pandas are one of his favorite animals. So he he yeah, went cool. he went as a panda, uh, and he, uh, um, 
uh, you know, he had a stick of bamboo for him to chew on, uh, and uh, it was no, he was um, he a was excited. Panda. That's cool. That's nice to hear. Mine both wanted to be obscure characters from video games. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, he's been he's been uh, like Pokemon. Uh, you know, different. <laughs> Different Pokemon a few times. Uh, I'm uh, familiar, yes. <laughs> yeah, so he was he was Pikachu year before last. Oh. Harry, Harry Potter last year, Pikachu the year before that, uh, Charizard the year before that. So. <laughs> yeah, no, my daughter seems to take it as a challenge of, well, can I pick something that no one will know? <laughs> that no one will, you're right, can I stump the panel? Yeah. yeah, seriously. She's like the second evolution of a robot boss from a video game on Steam. Wow. That's uh, uh, Metaton X from Undertale. Wow, that's pretty Undertale. <laughs> actually, I think uh, I think it's it's a good game. I think my kids play it. Undertale. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've I've definitely heard of that. Uh, cool. And the baby was a unicorn. Nice, excellent. And I, and I get all our candy. <laughs> yeah, that that is the advantage of uh, taking uh, infants out uh, to to. She she lasted five minutes and then she just sat down in the road and cried. <laughs> <laughs> what? How old is your little one now? Uh, she's what, almost sixteen months now. Sixteen months now. Okay. Six. Yeah. Right. So she she can say thank you for candy, but she's still like, why am I here and why am I dressed like this and why is it night and why am I not taking a nap? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. I understand. Well, the kids were just more mercenary than ever this year. I don't. I think this. I don't know if they'll recognize us if we go again. No, guys, no. <laughs> I think they'll recognize us. We right. Quick, switch costume. Because you know, there's so many metatons out there. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. All right. I think we're set. I think we're set. Let's uh, let's let's head north. So okay. Um. We got there. Sorry, there's the beacon. We can see the beacon on the hill up there, um, which is interesting, right? Because we don't hear anything about the war beacons up here uh, in Arnor, but of course it makes perfect sense that they would have them. Yeah. Um, my question is, whom was that designed to signal to? From there, I imagine, like, they could signal to there from Fornost, doubtless. Um, yeah. So if you had it set off a beacon, like, at the top of the, you know, of the, you know, the, the, the mountains under which Fornost is built, that would work. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. But who were they reaching for? Uh... The people in the fortress out here at Esteldeen? Yeah, I, I mean, that's the nearest fortress where somebody would be looking at that. I think they did have some yeah. tall towers and tall hills where they were looking at stuff, so possibly Esteldeen. Maybe to the bridge? Remember that there was an old stone bridge that had a new bridge built on top of it? Maybe that bridge was taller and had a watchtower. Right, maybe. That, that would have been a key That would have been a key point. Okay, I want to go up to the, to the beacon again now. I haven't been up there in forever. I want to see. Um, of course, you know, here's the other... It might work the other way. Oh, come on now. I almost lagged right off the cliff. Okay. So here's the beacon. 
I'm looking for any kind of iconography here. I don't see any stars. No. Setting off, setting off fireworks from the beacon. That's, it's a nice touch. Oh, nice one. The green tree, huh? Yeah. I've never seen that one before. Oh, I don't have fire breath emote on this one. <laughs> yeah, that's a good firework there. Uh -huh. Yeah, I like that. That's from the descri from the description of the. Mm-hmm. Uh, the make fireworks, right? From Lonely Mountain. Count the points. Ooh, good call. Those are making Numenorean stars. Yep. Oh, cool. I never noticed. I well, that shape is burned in my brain now, thanks to you. Yeah, well, and you—it's well—it's especially noticeable because the you know the, the longest point points down. Yeah. Right. I'd never noticed that the that those fireworks make Numenorean stars. Yeah, I wonder if that's something of Gandalf's idea there, or whether the dwarves are just kind of like, "This is a cool star, let's use it." Yeah. Interesting. Hang on, I'm going to dismount here. Um. Okay. Well, anyway, so. All right, now we're seeing stars in the sky, but I don't see stars in the masonry here. No, it's pretty plain. It is. This could have been built by almost anyone. It could have been. It doesn't look like a dwarf thing. No, but it also doesn't look like your typical Roman stuff that it has all the time that we see in a lot of the Nicorian stuff. Right. It's... It is partially ruinous, though, so it's clearly an old construction. Um, otherwise, you know, the, the lack of stars or whatever might suggest maybe it's a, a modern, you know, actually a modern building um, yeah. or semi-modern. But I don't think it is because, again, this, this pillar has collapsed over here in part of the roof. Um, the wood is clearly new. As uh, um, Tony was pointing out, it's clearly maintained, presumably by the Dunedain. It's got some... Plants growing in here, so it's not like fresh yesterday. But um, you know, it's it's still it's it's obviously burnable and could be used as a beacon. So from up here, let's see, let's look around. What do we see from here? There's the farmers down there. Can we get to? Do we have a sight line to Maluinen? I don't think we do. The elves, because uh, the elves are over the hill and down into the lowlands over there. I think they're too far down in the swamps, but if they had a watchtower on one of those hills. Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. Over that way, we got the hills behind Fornost. Though, maybe it wouldn't be as easy to see this from Fornost as I thought, actually. Oh, maybe not. Now that we're standing here. Yeah. Those hills are too much in the way. Well, I am pointed right at Fornost now, so maybe over on this, the far hills which are just dark in the nighttime. Yeah. On the other side of the river. Yeah. Um they could probably they could probably see from there. And then oh, interesting, see those hills in the foreground here looking to the southeast. Um so here I'm I'm pointed straight in the direction of Esteldine. Mm -hmm. And you can't see it at all because of those hills. Well well Esteldine itself is 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 uh enclaved in, in, in the Box Valley. But yeah. I'm pretty sure they would have had watchtowers along the ridge at that top there. That would have been silly right. not to. 
Right, or at least lookouts. But here's what I'm wondering. What I'm wondering is if maybe uh, when we were coming up here, I was thinking maybe instead of thinking about this just as a, like a, a communication point, and I was kind of thinking of it from Fornost out, like a way that Fornost could send a message like, you know, uh, help their attacking. But maybe it works the other way around. Maybe this would be to warn Fornost. Um, because this... Angmar was attacking. Exactly. Because the, the, the routes, the passes through the mountains up to Angmar are just to the east of here. You know, as, as we can see on the big map, uh, we're sort of in these, in this set of foothills here, uh, that, uh, stretches right between, um, the, the, right before that sort of last frontier out towards, so looking out here to the, to the east and sort of to the north, you can see, uh, well, that's just, that's the direction where the passes to Angmar are. So if Angmar were advancing, they would certainly know it here first, and to march down to Fornos, to attack Fornos from Angmar, this is the way you would almost certainly come, right? Because you're not going to come through Forakal, so, so... This might almost be as old as the Unified Kingdom, then. Potentially. Potentially. But it could also just be for the Divided Kingdom as well, when Arthodyne was at war with Rudaur and Angmar, if an Angmarim army is coming down to attack Fornost, the center of, of, of Arthodyne, then, um, you know, this would be a good advanced warning system. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I was, you know, seeing beacons, of course, I was immediately thinking of like, you know, the beacons between Rohan and Gondor. That is to send, you know, as a sort of communication, which could work in two ways, right? You know, the, the presumably... Uh, you could light the war beacons from Rohan, right? And then they would go down and be seen from, from Gondor. Um, oh, yeah. But I think that... Um, uh, I think that this is... Uh, this is quite likely just to be not, not part of a two-way communication system, but a way of giving an advance notice from this direction. Given the passes to Angmar, that seems to me most likely. Yeah, and given... I, I think my theory about the rivers doesn't work from this angle. Mm, right. Right. Yeah. But, and, I, but the fact that there is a beacon here, it kind of indicates there might be another beacon <laughs> near the near that bridge, though. Hey, that, there we go. That was a clever idea. <laughs> that was a clever idea. Somebody made a campfire up on top of the beacon. That's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> the beacon is lit. The Angmarim are attacking. Yeah, you can start a panic now. Well, <laughs> Exactly, right. Trick or treat. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Um, okay. All right. Well, let's go on to Othricar. I can't imagine this. <laughs> and we're on fire. <laughs> That's there. You go. That is setting fire to the to the beacon with a vengeance. <laughs> it, is, it is now a weapon and no longer a signal. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we'll see. Oh, wait, so JJ's asking, can I see the structure of on top of the far hill to the west? Um, the far hill to the west. I'm looking south. Uh, over there? Uh, Othricar? There's Othricar right there in the yeah. foreground. No, shit past that. Shaded against the sky. And no. I see trees. I, I could see it from the ground, but now that we're up here, I don't. I can't see where she's pointing because yeah, there were two structures. What the second one was? I think it was a watch gate for Othricar, though. Past and above Othricar. We'll tell you what. We're going to head over to Othricar next, and then we'll we'll look out again from there and see what we can see. Uh, past it. 
Um, yeah. I think this is the only beacon I ever remember seeing up here. Um, so I don't, I don't think there's a whole sort of train of war beacons up here, which is another thing that suggests that it's just like a, a sort of an early warning system from this direction rather than a, you know, a sort of stable communications thing. All right, well, hang on. Given how old it is, it might be the last of its kind. There might have been more. At one That's point true. They just fell out of use. That's true. Okay. Here we have our dwarven art deco stone history. That's right. Back up Not to Othricar. One of the things that really I find very striking about that, of course, you know, we don't get, we only get a few examples of open-air dwarvish architecture, right? Yeah, come to think of it. You know, often we get, like in Moria, for instance, we'll get, like, huge, enormous caverns that have houses and things like this built in it. Um, but rarely, this is a, a relatively rare example of a dwarvish a completely dwarvish uh, uh, village or, or settlement mm -hmm. out just yeah. made up of separate buildings out in the open air. <laughs> we only get that little outcropping in Thorns Gate. We yeah, exactly. Thorns Gate's almost entirely underground. Um, the, oh, hang on. Stable Master. Um, Makes you wonder why the bedrock was like maybe so hard that they, they couldn't do it underground like they usually do. I don't know, and most in hard rock, too, as Sam would say. Um, it didn't seem to stop them in Moria. Uh, so what, what stopped them here is the question. It is interesting, right? Now, because on the one hand, you could say, well, this is essentially a mining settlement, right? So they're mining, yeah. uh, they're mining the, the mountains to the north of here, which we'll get a look at in a minute. But they've still built all these stone structures. It's not like this is a, you know, a, a tent city. Uh, yeah. It's way more permanent than that. This, this is a boom town is what this is. Yeah, and it's all... It strikes me as very open. Yeah. You know, open... Well, and the other thing is we're not in typical dwarven climates. We're not in the freezing cold mountains. This might be right. like, you know, the Adir Adirondack... Uh, camping, you know, yeah, the, like the, camping with three walls kind of thing for them. Right? Exactly, like sort of summer home. Summer luxury in such a temperate zone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> JJ's saying maybe that they are tents. You know, it's just the dwarves make their tents out of stone. Um, it could be. They could have erected these buildings in like five days or something for all we know about the stone masonry. Yeah. I guess it... There's just there's much about the layout and look of this settlement that is not what I would have expected, and so I'm kind of trying to ask myself, well, what did I expect exactly? You know, what what would I have looked for? Um, well, yeah, no, mining town. You're looking for like you know your your tar paper your tar paper wood shacks. Right, right, exactly. Um, yeah, this doesn't say this doesn't look like Gold Rush or Boomtown or or even Boomtown as you were as you were saying. Um, all of these outdoor surfaces, right? This is another thing that, like, that tunnel was one thing, but, like, it stairs up to these, like, these platforms that you would then walk around here in the open air. 
sure these are apartments and someone's showing off the view in the nice weather. This is these these are like the people who go on beach vacation and stay forever and become parrot heads. <laughs> Maybe. But even that, it's not That's another interesting thing about it. It's up on a hilltop, but it has no view because it's in this like you know, it's like this scooped out area up here at the top. This is like the dwarven equivalent of the view. It's it's pretty, but <laughs> no one can see it still. <laughs> right. Not, it's not betraying any secrets. <laughs> you, right, exactly. It's, it it well, is still a secret. gorgeous view of this foundry. Look at that. Look at that gorgeous smelting pot. <laughs> right, I suppose. And that is kind of funny, right? That instead of having a fountain at the center, they have a foundry at the center. It's almost it's like a... fountain a, you can't go swimming in. <laughs> exactly. It's almost like a pun, right? Yeah. Um, I wonder if they toss coins in. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Well, yeah, you can. You toss coins in, and then you get something else out of it, right? Yeah. An alloy. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we learn that we do have a celebrity who is at least supposed to be in this town, right? Dory. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. And I'm pretty sure Dory here in Othricar was the first of the companions of Thor and Oakenshield that I ever met in the game because I didn't, I did a human first. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't, you know, of course you meet Dwalin out in, uh, Thorin's gate if you're a dwarf or an elf, but, uh, out here, uh, I was really, so I was really excited to meet Dory. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And minor celebrity out here. And uh, he seems to be the one who's been doing the best with, uh, trying to expand the, yeah. the dwarven movement. I, I think he's come up with, um, uh, he, he probably made a wiser choice of settlement. Yeah, perhaps so. Okay, here, let's head off to the north here and look at the mountains. Okay, so we got some some mines here in these hills themselves, right? Shaft entries here. Yeah, shaft entries here. Now we're gonna have there's mobs up here, so we need to be yeah careful. Yeah, foot or um. I can't. Ooh, something just hit me there. Yeah, that was weird. There's some sort of presence there. Are we near a roving threat? Ooh, I hope not. That would get ugly all around. It would show up red on my... Okay. That is. All like right. Dowerhand presence or something. So we've got these mountains up to the north. Those are where their mines are. Oh, wait, hang on. I want to go over to the west and see if I can see Fornos from here or whatever other thing we were seeing. Okay, so I want to come over this way. I didn't get that little flash this time. Yeah, me neither. So having a, having just, you know, said, done the farewell with Goldberry, you know, I'm now wanting to stand on hilltops and look at views tonight. About poetry. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Oh, man, that scene was so embarrassing for me as a kid. Oh, what, it's, when... Like when, it's like when your mom starts singing in the car. <laughs> When Frodo busts out into poetry? Yeah, you just know, you know, Pippin and, and Mary, just, they don't know where to look. Just like, is, is he stopping? Is he, is he done? Is, oh, he's just still going. He's still going. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> it, it does tell you how much it would have taken to, to move a stuffy little English hobbit to just suddenly do that in the middle right. of nowhere. Well, it is an enchantment. It is a, it is a kind of transformation. Mm-hmm. 
that. Yeah, well, and, you know, I've seen that in the, the Englishman, too. I mean, everyone's like, oh, they're so reserved. I'm like, yeah, I've also seen them bust out Jerusalem with tears streaming down their face. Right, right. I went to the 50th anniversary of VE Day. That was the most emotional I'd ever seen most of these people. Right, right. Yeah, I can easily amazing. imagine that. It was pretty amazing. Yeah. So this is definitely your... So here's a ruin, but that's definitely not what we were seeing from over there. Because you can't no. see... You can't see... This is down... This is a lower elevation from the, the Nalthar cars. So from the other side, from the beacon, we couldn't see this. Um, I, I know what they were talking about. There were two things. I just, for the life of me, I can't figure out where that second hilltop was and what was there. It's like we could see it from the road approaching Othricar. I'm seeing I trees. See yeah. Against the sky. I'm also seeing the hint of dawn. Right, yes, we are in the fore dawn now. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we can come up and look for it again after it's more fully white. But you can totally tell from here that this was an Arnorian ruin. Yeah. The, the colonnades. Yeah, exactly. So let's let's go down. Let's see that. I think we can slide down here. There we go. Yeah, don't ride in the camp. <laughs> now here we have. That's a proper camp, right? That's there. a that's a, we, got, we got dwarves in tents here, right? These are the yeah. bad guys. These guys are not planning to stay there. Exactly. Okay, and here's Ost Galamar. Now let's see who lived here. Oh, we can see who lived here. There it is. <laughs> the Rudaran symbol on the first. Oh, yep, right there. Capital, we see. Ring a treat. Yeah. And is the staff up there somewhere? Well, yeah, I was looking for the scepter. I didn't see the scepter. Scepter. See, in the other ruin, it was up here. But I'm not seeing it. Uh, yeah, usually they were in the little uh, li- little keystones. Like keystones, the, the yeah. Con- between the arcs there. Yeah. I'm seeing the Rudarin symbol, but not the scepter. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I wonder if this is built first and the scepter was a later idea. Well, see, that's what I'm wondering. Right? I'm wondering... So this is... This is the... The story that I would, uh, the story that I would fit to that, right, is that we know, of course, that the division between Arthodyne and Rudaur and Cardolan was a family division, right? These are three separate families, all with connections to the royal line, each of which was claiming the kingship after, uh, after the 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 last king of the unified kingdom died. Um, and remember, of course, we saw this sort of the stage set for this in over there in the greater Anuminous area with the different families setting themselves up in their posh summer homes and all that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. The connection between the Rudaurin symbol and the scepter was very insistent in Minas Vrun, the uh, other one that we saw down here 
um, yeah. by uh, 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 nearer to Fornost, overlooking Fornost. Up here, we see the Radaran symbol everywhere, but not the scepter. Um, so perhaps this is before they claimed it. Maybe this is an older Rudaran settlement uh, or stronghold before the civil wars even broke out. Or maybe just a palace of his before it right. officially be a rally. Right. And notice the stones here are like really much bigger and much more brown than the ones we saw on the beacon, which were small, tight, and gray. Yes. Yes. Yeah, none of these keystones have scepters no, in it. No, none of them do. Yeah, so maybe this was before their sort of royal aspirations? Yeah, maybe this was just... A, I mean, it it looks like a palace. It looks like something that's been divided into chambers and rooms. Yeah, yeah. And, and stuff, and it's just for, just for getting around. I mean, it's clearly heavily fortified. Oh, hey, look, it's Dory! Well, any palace would have to be. Yeah, he's a he's a prisoner. What have they imprisoned him in? It looks like a circus wagon. wagon. Yeah, exactly. Mommy Fortuna's midnight carnival. <laughs> Mommy Fortuna. That's what it, that's what I think it looks like. That's yeah, funny. yeah. No, that the yeah, it's it's pretty good make. It's not your. Uh, I don't know. It's got all these different. See, parts of it is a really well built, and then some of it's just clutched together with little bars all over it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they had a good cage, but it was <laughs> like they, they needed to fix it. Get the bad cage that used to be the good cage, but we're fixing it up. <laughs> ah, look, a dais in the middle. Again, this yeah, this so that you've got the star completely plastered over with Rudarin crowns slash mm -hmm. trees, and yep, yep, yep. another one here. Though this one's all crumbled, and oh, there's one. There's a scepter. Yeah, the, I can see the head of it poking out just there. Yeah, in this window here. That's weird, actually. Yeah, not it's to like have it's, the whole scepter. Yeah, or maybe no. This is definitely chiseled. It was meant to be this part of the wall. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, question is: Is this a place where he addressed vast armies, or is this a place where he was entertained? Right. Well, oh, I see a step. There's a scepter right there. Yeah. On that on that little keystone of the ark. Yes, over there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so the one that's. This is the new wing. See, that's what I was thinking, too. And you'll notice how we're finding them here in this sort of, well, like decorative internal portion of the stronghold. I mean, we're way in past several different layers of walls. Oh, yeah, this is some, definitely some sort of anti-chamber. Yeah. Whereas, again, even on these walls over here, there are still no scepters on this, anywhere yeah. on this wall. And it's less cloistered. It's much more open. Yeah. Yeah. So this was his, this was a secret room. You had to pull the book out of the bookcase, <laughs> slide open, and this is the part you got on the inside right. with his uh, right. red stained glass windows. Okay. Now, now my head's turning into Mask of the Red Death. <laughs> 
was. So, okay, so this would lead us then to the theory that this was a Rudaran palace slash stronghold, uh-huh. which um, was then added on to yeah. later on and made sort of more grandiose in the later generations when the when the Rudaurans uh, got sort of royal aspirations. Yes, we do have another one here, as several people were pointing to. But see, notice how this stone even looks different, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. This looks like a gatehouse that was built separately to yeah. sort of augment the defenses around yeah, from this side. Yeah, this is definitely side. meant as, a, as another fortification that was added on later. Yeah, and so you see this is, of course, a very prominent scepter, but again, even, yeah, even the stone looks different from yeah. the other stone here. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I don't think I've examined this one. Cool. Yeah. I've never really understood the this whole like little bridge area thing. It seems I mean, I guess from the inside it you can it enables you to come out here and defend so coming up, yeah, defend so the approach. Coming up to your house. Yeah. Well, if this is part of the new gatehouse, it must have been... Yeah, maybe there wasn't this before, and this is part of the new gatehouse where it's meant to keep better tacks and have archers lined up if you needed them. Yeah, maybe. Maybe this is just designed as a kind of a lookout. Because, I mean, this arch doesn't... Notice there's no there's no crenellations or anything, right? This doesn't look like it's designed to, like, stand here and defend against an army invading because there's nothing to stand behind. You know, there's no... It could be a buttress. Maybe the wall right. wasn't as strong as they thought. Well, but see, now this suggests to me, this suggests to me the, it seems to support your theory of this being initially less of a fortress and more of a palace, right? Um, this little span here would have been, because presumably there would have been a road coming up this valley, right? Because you can't. This is a gorgeous view here. Yeah, it is. This is really nice. So you can't, but you can't approach this from any other direction. Um, and so, especially if you were coming from Fornost or the Enuminous direction, right? There would be there would have been a road that would have come around this hill and then underneath this arch that we're standing on here. Um, mm-hmm. So this would have been you know grand and nice, and you could stand here and like wave and stuff and look out, but it's not this isn't really designed doesn't have the mar- the this i mean it's heavy brick walls, but it doesn't have this uh, fortification okay, there are no crenellations you there's nothing to stand behind and shoot yeah, here it's not it doesn't seem martial in nature right, but then you build this new gatehouse, which wouldn't even have been there, so that you would have just ridden around this. And then straight up the hill to the to the front doors uh-huh. back in the old days, but then we erect the new gatehouse. Yeah, I like that. The two phase construction before and after the beginning of the of the Arnorian civil wars. I'm pretty sure that it had taken several generations to build this, so that does follow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and Amathorn is pointing out that it does seem that. Uh, Maybe somebody did not like the scepter being carved there, as there seems a rather conspicuous uh, gash gash there through there. That seems entirely possible. It's not been carefully effaced by any means, but uh, but yeah, that is an interesting... Isn't that the same gash we saw at um, the other 
common from? Maybe. I don't remember it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Um, all right, so sun's up now. I want to go back up the hill and see if I can see the thing again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's, whoops, fell off. <laughs> yeah, this is like, you could tell this was multiple stage construction because some of it just makes no sense. Yes. Okay. First I have lots of cover, and then I have so much cover, I run into it. <laughs> right. Alright, we're going up around. Can I... Ah, I'm not sure you can scale this. Go up this hill? Can we make it? I'm not sure. Oh I've yeah, we got so it. Many times. Yeah, we did it. Okay. So many times I thought I was got a clear cut, a straight cut to something. Yes. Found out I couldn't get up a hill. Yes, these I spent a fair amount of time wandering in these hills myself. Okay. Now back up where the view is even greater. So from here, where's that beacon? There's the beacon, almost at eye level, on the other side of Othricar. Okay. There's the hills which conceal Esteldeen down. Looking down to the south, there's that... No, okay, there it is. Right off in the distance, you can see the watchtower on that hill above the farms. Um, and that's the hill right above. So down past that is the wetlands in which Maluin and that elvish settlement is. So over here... Okay, there. That's Fornost. Isn't that Fornost? Well, I see the beacon. Let me see. So if we're looking to the west now... Oh, okay. I'm looking at the rest now. I think that's the Tower of Fornost. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, you did say it was a pretty high elevation. That yeah, because remember, sense. you're going uphill and uphill and uphill, and then there's, like, I think that's the big castle in front, like, in front of which the broken statue is... Yeah, that structure. So is that structure what people were talking about seeing from the beacon? Not sure. <laughs> it looks like that's certainly high enough that I'm sure you can see that from the beacon. Yeah, or, yeah. or rather, can see the beacon from there. Yeah. Uh, even though the beacon is down there. Yeah, so probably so swinging back around. Yeah, clearly. So if you lit that beacon, you definitely could see that beacon lit from the top of Fornost here. Um so, yeah. Oh, another thought about the beacon, too. Maybe it could also have been used as a warning to the farmers in the surrounding lands that they need to take cover. Possibly, yeah. I mean, one wonders who, like, what were the loyalties of the, you know, the farmers in this region back in the days of the Civil Wars, I mean, you know, the well, Arnorian Civil War. people who lived here had to eat. yeah. Right, but I mean, this is kind of a frontier zone, right? I mean, you got to think that the the river, whose crossing we saw, that was uh, that was Rudarin, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. The fortress there. So, and Minas Run, of course, over here was Rudarin. So the, um, you know, Fornost is really, so far at least, as far as we've seen, the the kind of frontier of the of of Arthodine, as we discussed, having that be sort of the the stronghold, which kind of keeps the gateway over to Enuminous um, and uh, uh, and the whole even dim region. Um, 
Which means that that beacon, if it was designed for Foros, would be pretty isolated. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway. Alright. Well, I should let folks go. It's almost midnight here on the East Coast. Um, next time, uh, assuming we don't get too deep into the Barrow Downs, which I'm not going to rashly assume <laughs> we're going to make it too far in next time, um, we'll probably stick with here and we'll go on to Esteldine next time. Right. And look around Esteldine. Uh, and then uh, we'll be heading out towards Angmar, but then we'll also we'll also head to the Barrow Downs at some point. So, All right. So thanks, everybody, for joining me on this uh, lovely Halloween evening. Uh, sorry for problems with Twitch and hoping that my... Um, hoping that my... Uh, my lack of... Normal electricity here didn't contribute too much to it. So, um, but anyway, so we will see you guys again next week for more with the Barrow Downs and more uh, uh, here up in the North Downs. And uh, yes, don't forget, uh, tomorrow night is our penultimate Treason of Isengard class uh, as we are getting towards the very end of Treason of Isengard. So, uh, thanks very much, everybody. And I will see you guys next week. Bye now. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.